0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: So welcome back to the final day of um, our Tanner Lecture Series this year. Um, As a consequence of Carolyn Hawksby's extraordinary Tanner Lectures and the splendid commentaries by Jan Werner Mueller. Um, Eric Hurst and Sylvia Bungay. I, for one, certainly feel that I, over the past few days, have acquired new advanced cognitive <laughs> skills, for which I realize I have now to thank not only our discussants, but also certain world-weary, um, long-suffering middle school teachers from the mid-1980s. Um, however, uh, not for reasons necessarily of neuroplasticity, um, but just because it's our last day, the window for future growth is closing. So let me turn it over as soon as possible um, to our Tanner lecturer and commentators. Um, So we'll begin with some further reflections from Jan Werner Mueller, Eric Hurst, and Sylvia Bungay. Then we'll have a brief break of about 10 minutes We'll hear responses from Carolyn Hoxby. And then we'll have open discussion, including if there are any um, questions from the audience. So take it away, Jan.
2: Thank you, and I'll stand up if I, if I may. So I'm afraid I still haven't acquired the advanced cognitive skill of using PowerPoint.
1: <laughs>
2: but I do firmly believe in the power of my points of which there are two main ones and then also two questions which perhaps people who know much more about this area than I do can possibly help me with. So as you all know, um, we've heard over the last two days a very powerful case for acquiring advanced cognitive skills in middle school in particular. I will try to complement this, this is my first point, with, in light of our larger political challenges, a perhaps predictable case for, well, you may as well say social or more particularly civic, or also in the widest sense, political skills. And my sense is that a couple of decades ago, this would have all been entirely obvious. Nobody would have necessarily felt the need to belabor A sort of larger argument about the necessity of civic education. But I think it's fair to say that today, civic education is under pressure from two rather different angles. The first one is simply that plenty of people, it seems to me, are always ready to say, yeah, of course this is important stuff. Of course it's basic for democratic citizenship. But given all the other stuff we have to worry about given the importance of stem fields given the importance of competing with china and so on and so forth there's always a temptation to say well let's cut whatever we can sort of still sort of shave shave away and that's particularly concerning because if you go back to john dewey and others who really saw the school you know as the site where you learned basic skills for democratic citizenship it was clear that this was going to take time i mean to basically treat others respectfully in a certain way, while at the same time engaging in conflicts. Maybe a little bit along the lines, I was trying to make plausible to you on the first day, so again, democracy is not about consensus, it is about conflict, but conflict conducted in a particular way, such that you do not denigrate your adversaries, such that you do try to hold on to a shared set of facts. That just takes time. And... My sense is that more and more people are willing to say, well, you know, it's too bad, but we just don't have the time for these, sorts of, for these sorts of exercises. The other pressure on civic education is maybe more particular to the United States. I think there's a fair amount of evidence that in an age of high polarization, many people, and perhaps in particular teachers, shy away from really political Education, because they are worried that things might get out of hands amongst the kids themselves, or of course i don 't need to tell you this in great detail amongst the parents, because as we 've seen in particular in the last couple of months, curricula questions about what 's included, what happens in the classroom can very easily be weaponized in our in our day and age. so I worry that this particular anxiety has led to a sort of tendency to make civic education basically about road learning of facts. How many branches are there? You know, how does this work, the mechanics of government here and there? Which, to be sure, we shouldn't denigrate. I mean, I'm sure you've all seen surveys which you know, empirically, very powerfully demonstrate that many, many more people know the judges of American Idol than know the judges who sit on the Supreme Court. So I'm not denigrating this kind of factual knowledge, but it's also not really civic education in the sense of how do we really deal with deep disagreements in our our democracies. So I think that's a concern that certainly is also present in schools. I dare say it now extends into colleges as well. I think the argument has been powerfully made most recently by Ron Daniels. the president of Johns Hopkins, who actually wrote a very worthwhile, very good book called What Universities Owe to Democracy, where among other things he points out that of course the increasing emphasis on community service is a very good thing. I mean, the the fact that people go out there and volunteer and do something real for the local communities, great. At the same time, it's of course in a certain way also curiously apolitical. It kind of displaces more directly political engagement because community service is kind of safe. And plus, you know, not to be too cynical, it, it's, you know, yet another thing you can add to your CV, you know, in addition to the three NGOs you founded in Indonesia already in your teenage years, and so on. So it's sort of a safe way of basically bringing in something that looks political, but isn't really political. And I worry that the more we go down this path, the less we prepare young people for the basic requirements of democratic citizenship. That's the first point. One question, that's sort of particularly to Caroline, I, I suppose, um, when I thought about especially what you said yesterday about how you talk to policymakers, how you try to feed your findings into a policy-making process, you know, it was it was heartening to hear that there are people who are ready to listen, who are basically willing to engage in experiments. The question that occurred to me was, well, what kind of potential, possible institutional obstacles are there, or where does the counter pressure come from exactly? And by institutional obstacles, I'm sort of referring to the question basically whether a given institutional infrastructure in the country might sometimes make certain policy directions, proposals very, very difficult to implement, even if many people are on board in theory. I'll just give one brief example to illustrate this point. I think this is by now long forgotten. But basically after having destroyed a large part of British manufacturing, the Thatcher government actually had the idea that you know, actually manufacturing wasn't such a bad thing, and now that trade unions had been crushed, there should be more emphasis on what, basically, the Germans were doing. And so many people among the Thatcher government actually said, look, we should have more vocational training, more apprenticeships. I mean, we've heard arguments from Eric why this isn't, you know, in our day and age, necessarily such a great idea. But the interesting thing is that this clearly didn't work because very soon people realize, okay, to actually bring about an outcome like this, you do need a particular set of institutions, including fairly strong trade unions, who are willing to work with employers, who are willing to put together a system where young people do get these apprenticeships in a way that actually allows them then to join companies, do certain kinds of work, and so on. And as many of you probably remember, sort of only after this failure, the British government then basically said, okay, screw it, basically. We're gonna try to do something different. We are t- trying to push as many young people into universities. That's also the moment when British polytechnics became universities all of a sudden, and they said, we want as many young people as possible to acquire some skills which may or may not be useful later on. I mean, I'm caricaturing a little bit, but there was a sort of sense at the time that, look, they can all become programmers at least, you know, because they will somehow know something about how to do something with, with computers. So just to illustrate the point that you know sometimes you do need a particular interest, institutional infrastructure to implement certain policies. So I'm wondering how this kind of question plays out in the United, in the United States. One other question um, that well, it's not really meant to be provocative, but might might introduce a tiny bit of dissensus. Uh, Which I think we need to generate, because otherwise, especially people at home are going to say, "Look, it's liberal elite sitting there again. They agree about absolutely everything. They keep saying nasty things about Appalachia, you know, etc." So, you know, where is the disagreement here? So here's one question: Um, We've been sort of treating the economy almost as a given, and there are these new challenges, and they have to do with globalization and a shift away from manufacturing. And I'm not disputing the basics of the story. But of course on one level the economy is not just objectively given. There are political choices and maybe less obviously and here you at last maybe can hear the normative theorist speaking a bit more. There is a need for capitalism to justify itself. It's not self-justifying. And one of the I find most interesting, maybe most important theories in the last 20, 30 years that have looked about changing justifications for capitalism emanate from two French sociologists, maybe some of you may remember reading this book, that's called The New Spirit of Capitalism. And it's Luc Boltanski and Eve Kierpelot who basically say capitalism today really does look very different and it has something to do with the requirement of advanced cognitive skills, but the way it looks different also has something to do with how capitalism came under, under pressure after the 1960s. After the student movements, after many people basically said, it's not just social security that matters for us as participants in the economy, we also want autonomy, we want self government, we want self realization. And so, this is what Boltansky and, and Chapelot famously then called the artistic critique of capitalism, as opposed to the old and old sort of social critique, which was more about security and which was certainly very fitting for a Fordist age, but which in a post Fordist age, all of a sudden became something that revolved much more about demands for autonomy. They sort of tried to, to illustrate this shift by looking at French management manuals, you know, how, what is actually taught in business schools, where they basically said, look, it was sort of the end of a certain type of hierarchy. Managers became much more like facilitators of teams. They weren't traditional bosses. Work itself became a succession of projects as opposed to a predictable sort of career path over, over many decades. And for many people, this is an entirely empirically plausible argument, Um, but it also introduces a wrinkle into the whole story of, you know, is the economy just given or is the economy also a site where different normative justifications possibly clash and where, you know, it's always worth asking the question, okay, so then why did this happen exactly? Um, Maybe to some degree, yes, it's due to technological change and globalization, but there also is a story about how people are basically convinced that this is something that's worthwhile, that's ultimately legitimate in certain ways, and I don't think I need to point to places not too far away from here where, you know, especially this, especially this overall vision of an artistic critique has seemingly been overcome, or has, as as, as Boltanski and Caputo would put it, the critique has been recuperated. Because hey, who wouldn't love free espresso all day? You can bicycle in, you know, in, in your in your workplace. You can wear a hoodie, and so on. I'll spare you all the rest of the teachers. You will know all oh, this much much better than I do, and than I do actually. So that's another question. So sort of what we make of this more normative side? Last point. So we've been talking a little bit at least about economic fatalism and about the dangers, in particular, of right-wing authoritarian populism. So forgive me. Um, if I close by just very directly confronting the whole question, what is to be done? Because I suspect most of you would tend to agree with me that we do still live in politically incredibly perilous times, and many of us are not asking the question, what can we, what can we do under these, under these circumstances? So if I may, I'll leave you just with two thoughts in this, in this, in this, in this regard. The first one is simply... That, you know, ideally, especially, you know, you, you predictably, professor doing democratic theory would say that, wouldn't he? That ideally, I- of course, all citizens are always democratic theorists on some, on some level. Always could recite the basics of what democracy is about. But that's become particularly important now. And in addition to ideally all citizens being able to do that, it's also become particularly important for certain professionals, such as journalists for instance. One of the, I think, real, in a sense, also cognitive challenges we've seen in recent years is that very often it's become very difficult to tell the difference between normal run-of-the-mill policy disagreement and situations where democracy itself is all of a sudden at stake. And again, some of you may, disagree, may, may actually agree with me when I say that journalists have sometimes done a particularly bad job of bearing that distinction in mind. There are plenty of journalists out there who still pretend that we have two normal political parties, that all we ever see is normal run-of-the-mill policy disagreement, when in fact one of these parties, in certain regards, has decisively turned against some of the basics of democracy. And it's an art, not so much a science maybe, to kind of bring out this distinction, such that you do not look like a partisan hack That as a journalist, you cannot simply be accused of, oh, but you're always writing bad stuff about Republicans. How dare you? You are just, you know, obviously partisan and biased and prejudiced and so on. To basically get the point across that, no, we can have many, many policy disagreements, but sometimes it's not just a normal policy disagreement. A red line has been crossed. And that, I think, also has become a very important challenge for opposition parties in countries where the government has been captured by right-wing authoritarian populace including some of what we witnessed in this country in the last uh, 4 or 5 4 or 5 years when an opposition that always sort of takes it to the max and you know whatever happens is always a threat for democracy on a certain level is going to lose credibility whereas an opposition that says look we don't like it if the healthcare system is you know transformed again completely if the affordable care act were to be totally uh, repealed in some form or another. But that's ultimately just a normal policy disagreement. And any Republican president would have tried it, of course. It wasn't special about, about Trump. But going after inspectors general, uh, not accepting you know, an election loss, that is not a normal policy disagreement. And I know that none of this is really news for people in this room, but that in one, on one level is, well, I, de- I wouldn't say it's a skill, but it's a kind of capacity for judgment. That one needs to hold. It's not always as obvious as I'm making it out to be, maybe now. And that's something that ideally I think young people would also pick up on a way in in, in such a form that they can take it into adulthood and can usefully uh, employ that kind of sense of judgment later on. Very last point in this in this regard. I think one of the dominant trends of our era in general in politics, and not just in the United States, is what some of our colleagues tend to refer to as the mainstreaming of the far right. That certain policy positions, which clearly used to be completely beyond the pale, all of a sudden are adopted, are legitimized by what are generally seen as respectable, let's say, center-right actors. We've just seen a classic example of this in France where you basically had traditional center-right parties, which nobody really suspects of being sort of crazy right-wing authoritarian populists, basically have a candidate um, who, as some of you may recall, in one speech, basically repeated the conspiracy theory of the Great Replacement, as in Muslims are being sent here to get rid of the real French population. That would have been unthinkable 10, 20 years ago. But it sort of slowly is happening. And the reason I underline this point is simply that with these kinds of actors, the actors who are still seen as centrist, normal, respectable, mainstream, and so on, maybe occasionally some of us have a chance to talk to them or to influence them. If I tomorrow you know, knock on the headquarters of the Marine Le Pen campaign, I don't think they're gonna give me a lot of time, and they don't wanna hear my lecture about populism and all this kind of stuff. But if you talk to you know, respectable conservatives, if you can still find any here and there, that can, I hope, still make an enormous, enormous difference. And again, that's a question of judgment, how one approaches this. It's not a science, it's an art, but I think that's also the kind of thing that ideally we would acquire by way of basic political skills. Okay. Forgive the sermon, or maybe some even thought it was a rant, but since, you know, since, since the invitation was to be somewhat more riffing and free-flowing on this last day, I hope you're, you're me. Thank, Thank you anyway me. for your attention. Okay, so
0: I'm going to complement what Jan did in, in, in one particular way, which is I want to think kind of where we go next. And so if we believe that investments in, 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 in adolescence are going to have huge payoffs, you know, what is the margin? And so we talked a lot about advanced cognitive skills, and I want to try to separate that a little bit from just general education you know, is it really something about advanced cognitive skills or is it something about just, you know, other types of skills that might also be uh, accredited um, through the process? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then as we do, I'm going to show a little bit more about, you know, kind of inequality under a cro- uh more socioeconomic forces, as opposed to just purely economic forces. Yesterday, I talked a lot about, you know, kind of employment and wages and income and things. I'm going to try to talk a little bit more about inequalities in other vectors that we've heard a lot about in, in, in recent time periods. And then I want to end kind of where Jan did and just try to think then, what does that mean for next steps in policy? So we have this information. How do then we translate into actions? And part of what we're going to think about, and at least that's what I do with a lot of my work, is you know, you know where, why does policy need it in a toy? Is there some sort of barrier that is preventing people from retrieving their best selves? And if there is such a barrier, we think there's a, you know, a land of opportunity and equality. And if it's not that, can we then think about barriers? And it might be you know, the way we do public education, and we might have to change compensation in certain ways. But how do we go from that next step to figure out you know, how do we t- take our insights and go a little bit further? Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit now about advanced cognitive skills versus just general... Graduations, like her bachelor's degree, high school degree, etc. And so this is Caroline's picture from, from her talk yesterday about kind of where we see places with less of this measure of cognitive skill. This is from a test that people put out, and you could take the test, and it kind of measures your, I believe this one is the math um, ability. There's reading ones. You could see the lighter areas are where there is spatially heterogeneity um, in lower amounts of these skills relative to the darker areas. I'm just gonna show you one other picture, and this is just from the US Census. It's different colors. But this is now going to measure the fraction of the population with a bachelor's degree versus not. And so the darker the red areas, that means those are the places with the lowest amounts of of, um, citizens with a bachelor's degree. Those areas are nearly identical from what uh, Caroline showed before. So there is a strong correlation with the measures of advanced cognitive skills and just general measures of human capital. In this case, completed years of schooling. And so we might then ask ourselves, is there something more about advanced cognitive skills that are important above and beyond just um, completed years of schooling? And I'm going to show you, yes, there is. And that the way Caroline has been pushing us, there's something more above and beyond than just completed years of schooling. And I'm going to do that using... A couple of descriptive statistics from a data set that we use as economists a lot it's called the um, the National longitudinal surveys of youths so what does that survey do it follows a cohort of individuals when they're like 14 years old ish and it takes those individuals when they're 14 and follows them over long periods of time throughout their life as far as they can go and so there's a cohort in 1979 In a cohort in 1997, and they follow those individuals with surveys asking both economic and demographic questions in every year or every other year of their life going forward. When they are 14 years old, they were asked a set of questions about cognitive skills and other types of skills. But they were asked, um, every respondent was giving the arms force qualifying test as a 14-year-old, to try to measure some measures of cognitive skills. And this basically test measures, you know, math and reading um, um, skills, kind of like a, any standardized test test. And so the, the higher your score, the more of these types of skills you have. And so now I'm gonna ask, what happens to people with high measures of this skill when they are 14 on future outcomes in their life above and beyond just being educated. And so I'm going to show you a series of pictures like that now just to get a sense of what the data looks like. So so the first thing I'm going to show you is, is there a correlation between this test score and your future education outcomes? Remember, you're taking this test when you're 14. I could see you over your whole entire life. And then I could say, when you're 30, that's what I'm going to measure you, what is the highest degree of schooling you got when you're 30? And so I'm going to sort people by quartile of their AFQT score, this test score, when they were 14. So one means the bottom quartile, four means the top quartile. And then I'm just going to ask, what fraction of people in those quartiles, when they were 14, ends up getting a bachelor's degree? And so if you're in the bottom part of the AFQT, this test score distribution, when you are 14, only 2% of you are going to end up with a bachelor's degree later in life. If you're in the top quartile, about two-thirds of you are going to end up with a bachelor's degree later in your life. And the patterns are roughly similar over time. So this is the 1979 cohort. This is the 1997 cohort. And the patterns are also very similar for women as well as they are for men. So I'm going to focus on men kind of like I did yesterday, but the patterns are very similar uh, between, between men and women. So the, okay, so AFQT, this test score, these advanced cognitive skills, is strongly correlated with future education outcomes, exactly the way Caroline uh, kind of forecasted yesterday. There's something tangible about the, these skills. The next thing I want to show you is what is the propensity to work when you're 30 years old by these AFQT quartiles. And so if you are in the bottom of this standardized test, when you are 30, about only 82% of you worked in 1979. If you're in the top quartile, about 96% of you. So again, these things have future predictive power for um, your employment. The big decline in employment that I showed you yesterday that has occurred over this time period is concentrated in particular in people with very low AFQT score. And that includes even when I control for education. So if I did this education group by education group, it is really those with the lowest AFQT score that is going to be less likely to work above and beyond their accumulated years of schooling. So there's something about these skills that this test score is picking up. It's the same type of test scores that that Caroline was working with yesterday that kind of has predictive power of future outcomes above and beyond just education. And I'm gonna do it one more time to actually show you wage effects. So what I'm doing here is now you're 30 years old. I observe you when you're older in your life. I could imagine what you're earning when you're 30. I'm now going to project that, in a regression sense, on the AFQT score you had when you were 14. And these regressions are already controlling for your levels of human capital, your accumulated years of schooling. So above and beyond your schooling, when you're 30 years old, if you happen to be 14 and have a really high AFQT test score, again, conditional on all that education you got, your wages are 26% higher than somebody from the bottom AFQT group, which is the admitted group in this thing. So again, there's something about, there's tangible, above and beyond schooling that is going to be predictive of of people's future employment and and wage outcomes. Again, suggesting that it's not just measures of education per se. They're highly correlated with your kind of advanced skills by these kind of metrics. But it's got to be more than that. At least the data says there's more than just years of schooling, um, because it's predictive of your 14-year-old test score shows up with your wages two decades later above and beyond your education and your employment propensities. Let me just show one other thing that is on my mind for some time. It's other socioeconomic factors. I'm going to show you a few pictures on that right now. And so this is just when you're 30, again, so you're 30 years old, this is the propensity to live with your parents by AFQT score when you're 30 years old. Okay, it's rare. Those numbers are smallish, right? Most people don't live with their parents when they're 30. However, even again, conditional on education, those with a high AFQT score are less likely to live with their parents than people with low AFQT score. This pattern holds for men, for women, within each education group. So again, it's getting closer to Jan's kind of points there. There's other things that are changing besides just the economic forces in a socioeconomic sense. And I'm going to show you a couple more pictures in my last thing, and then I'm going to conclude, which is a couple of other metrics... Um, oh, this is the last thing. This is kind of just what yesterday we talked a little bit. I forgot about this slide. I apologize for my, my narrative uh, clunkiness. But this last one is basically showing parental background and AFQT score. So when you're 14, they ask, hey, tell me about your mom. Tell me about your dad. And so now I'm correlating your mother's education with the propensity to be in different AFQT quartiles. And so each one of these columns sum to 100 and so, having a mother with less than a high school degree basically means 40% of their children, conditional on a mother with less than a, a high school degree, show up in the lowest AFQT quartile. The mothers with a bachelor's degree, almost half of their children end up in the top quartile. So, there's this persistence intergenerationally. So, when we start talking, we talked a little about that yesterday about what is the role of persistence. Now, some of it we talked about genetics need not be genetic, as Caroline answered. There's a whole bunch of things that causes persistence, but this persistence shows up strongly in the data. And so how do we think about changing the system, realizing that there's this persistence? Again, it doesn't need to be genetics, but something that is um, strongly causing um, uh, socioeconomic status to be perpetuated across across generations. Okay, last pictures, and then... That's a summary. I want to talk a little bit now about other socioeconomic trends, and I'm going to show you some pictures. And so, this is kind of some work from some colleagues of ours um, um, at Princeton uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, and they've been hit a nerve in the kind of the popular discussions recently about this phrase, deaths of despair. So if you kind of Google deaths of despair, I believe that's a recent term, (laughs) David, Kerala, that is kind of a recent term, but it's hit the lexicon pretty well. And in particular, what it means is that in recent periods, there's been declining rates uh, of uh, increasing mortality rates, declining length of life, in particular, for middle aged individuals, particularly white uh, individuals, relative to trend. And so, what I'm showing you here is the mortality rates. This is from the book of, of Ann and Angus, where you could see this is white non Hispanic men with less uh, high school degree or less, and their deaths per uh, 100,000 individuals for 50 to 54 year olds has been rising in the last. Few years, and it certainly hasn't been declining over this time period. And over decades, we tend to see um, death rates falling, um, um, particularly for advances in heart disease and such. But we're not seeing that. And if anything, the deaths have been deaths of despair, means what has been driving this increase in death rates hasn't been heart attacks, it's been things like drug overdoses, suicides. Um, and, um, you know, homicides and, and, and alcohols. I'm going to show you the stuff on drug deaths over time. And again, we could say whether this is judgment or not. I'm not trying to be judgment. This is data. The places for which drug deaths have increased the most are in those same kind of circles that Caroline showed us yesterday over this time period. So increasing deaths of despair is not spatially concentrated. It is spatially dispersed. It is spatially concentrated in some of the same places for which we have seen um, you know, education levels being low, uh, manufacturing jobs disappearing. Um, you see drug deaths increasing. I'm going to show you one more, and then I'll conclude. This is just suicides. Again, it's a little bit more sparse there, but you can see the deeper red is more concentrated in, in some of those places. So we have, again, this inequality, that's been rising. The economic structure of the economy has been changing. It is showing up in measures economic, like wages and employment, but we don't care so much only about wages and employment. It's showing up in lots of other components of socioeconomic uh, well-being, like suicides and, and drug overdoses. Again, I care more about this, a lot about the spatial components. I mean, Caroline's kind of of pointed us in that direction, but a lot of my work is trying to explain this spatial variation. We all have the same political system. We all have the same institutions. We all listen to the same, have access to the same types of information, but yet outcomes are diverging spatially within the United States, which tells me that there is some role for some of these, these economic forces, potentially, to explain some of these aggregate trends. Um, the last picture, and this is just a version of what uh, uh, Caroline showed the other, in her first lecture, I've done it a little differently. So what I've done here is the propensity for participants in a given county in 2016 to vote Republican normalized how they've done in the past. So normalized how they've done relative to um, 2012. This one's 2012, but I've done it in 2012 or a whole bunch of other people. So this is where the political shifts have occurred relative to trend in the United States, shifting towards uh, voting for one party, in this case the Republican Party. And you can see a lot of the red is in the upper point. It's not just this little region where those shifts have been, these places vote Republican in almost all, you know, many elections. But the shift has occurred here. And the last thing I'm going to show, which makes me think there are these economic forces, is if you take a look at this picture and then remind me where I showed you those manufacturing declines were um, for my lecture yesterday, they correlate a lot stronger together. So again, this, the weakening of the economic Situation might be moving us towards some of these political shifts that we're worried about. And it's not spatially, again, dispersed, it's spatially concentrated in where some of these shifts occur. And that is all I have. So, again, there's a lot of uh, things. I just love all of it. I do want us in our open time together to talk a little bit about what is the policy? What's next? We take this and where do we go from here? Perfect. That's all I got. <clears throat>
3: Okay, thank you to both of our discussants. It's been fantastic. So yesterday, I talked about the cognitive and neural underpinnings of advanced cognitive skills, particularly reasoning, and then I provided an overview of brain plasticity. I showed that abstract reasoning begins to plateau around age 12, uh, although there's a lot of individual variability. And I also showed that the strength of this frontoparietal brain network, the white matter connections, at this time predict not only concurrent reasoning but also the growth of reasoning over time. So a question at hand then is whether providing students with the opportunity to practice reasoning in this middle school kind of early adolescent period it can strengthen that underlying brain network, making it then easier to tackle other novel challenges in the future. So I should note that this is not a foregone conclusion, and this comes back to some things that Jan Werner was talking about as well. So on the one hand, our current Western educational system has its roots in ancient Greece, where Plato and Socrates argued that future rulers of the country should receive extensive training in mathematics uh, and, and other skills as well to prepare them to reason through moral and political problems. And to this day, our investment in education is based on the idea that formal schooling hones these general uh, skills that help students to become productive members of society, as we were talking about. However, the possibility of transferable, domain-general cognitive skills has been hotly debated for over 100 years. And I would say that most cognitive psychologists and many education researchers believe based on research from pretty targeted focused interventions, um, that learning is highly context and content specific, that basically this is a fool's errand. So on the other hand, to uh, to paraphrase some of my colleagues, um, asking whether learning can transfer is like asking whether medicine cures disease. Well, it depends, right? So I've argued that high-quality schooling that's immersive, multifaceted, and protracted uh, learning experiences are more promising than the kinds of short-term focused interventions that have been studied predominantly, especially in cognitive psychology. So for this reason, I'm really intrigued by the data that Caroline showed us regarding the effects of SAT scores of changing a... uh, Uh, Changing a statewide assessment to one that placed greater demands on reasoning, or or more generally, it was just more cognitively challenging, that surely prompted changes in teaching practices to teach to the test. And she found that students who had undergone the new, more challenging test early uh, from grades five to eight um, performed better on the SAT later on than those who had not had this kind of curriculum geared towards this test until high school. I think it would be interesting to follow up on these promising findings by comparing the reasoning skills of students exposed to STEM curricula that do or do not really adequately meet the current very rigorous US science standards called the next generation science standards that focus very much on critical thinking skills. So now I want to shift gears and speculate as to what drives the findings that Caroline showed us regarding teacher value added. She asked at what point in a student's education, high quality instruction maximally benefited uh, academic outcomes. So this is a really tough problem since it's almost never the case that the same educational intervention can be applied at different ages. That's like comparing apples and oranges, as Caroline mentioned. Um, And in all honesty, I've really spent years scratching my head trying to figure out exactly how to do that. So, you know, and, and as Caroline also noted, these sort of small intervention studies are not scalable. So looking at the effects of teacher quality on student outcomes is a brilliant approach. It's really a meaningful, natural intervention at all grade levels. Now, the inverted U pattern of responsiveness to teacher quality that Caroline finds across the grades is really striking, right? I mean, students' capabilities and their life circumstances change over time. Um, So one would probably expect that you'd be best able to predict student outcomes if you look at more recent performance metrics, right? A year or two beforehand as opposed to several years later. But that's not at all the case. So what's special about early adolescence that could explain these findings? As Caroline notes, endogenous skill growth is, uh, is not gonna be able to account for this, right? If it's simply that skill begets skill and just builds on each other, compound interest over time, then basically you would see this critical foundation being laid down earlier, and you would see this kind of decline. Um, so teacher value-added effects would be greatest in the early grades and then lowest in high school. And in fact, of course, this idea has been used as justification for investing in the early years. So, But maybe middle school is just a precarious time when the curriculum picks up speed and it's harder to catch up if you fall behind. That's something we talked about um, the first day. That would also be compatible with an endogenous skill growth account, just on a different time frame. Now the second graph here, overall brain plasticity also cannot account for this inverted U because overall it is um, highest in early childhood. And so you'd expect to see the same pattern as you see for a pure early endogenous skills account. On the other hand, if a neural system is in the process of undergoing major reorganization at the time of an intervention, it might not stick. Any changes could be overwritten by continued maturation. As I mentioned uh, yesterday, uh, the frontoprietal network that supports reasoning and these um, abstract skills matures significantly throughout childhood. And this could explain the problem of fade-out that Caroline was talking about, so essentially. So early adolescence, um, shown in pink here, could then be a sweet spot in which this brain network is sufficiently developed that it isn't going to undergo a major reorganization after that, but at the same time it's still more malleable than later in adolescence or in adulthood. My professor... Uh, my colleague, Professor Linda Wilbrecht here at Berkeley, has recently shown in rodents that if you, if you shift around the timing of uh, the onset of pubertal hormones, sex hormones, you can shift around the maturation of frontal cortex. So if you shift pubertal hormones early, you see the, the frontal cortex is maturing earlier and the sensitive period starts to close earlier. Um, so middle school may be this time when the window is starting to close. And there's something else we can talk about, which is um, the relation between pubertal onset and socioeconomic status, which is something that that actually is, is worth discussing. But anyway, all of this is probably not the whole story either. And here I want to challenge, um, I want to channel my colleague Ron Dahl here at Berkeley and also Larry Steinberg, who was supposed to be here in my place. Um, and they would highlight that adolescence is a period of transition between childhood and adulthood, not only physiologically regarding sex hormone rise, um, but also in terms of social changes, including increased freedom, reduced reliance on caregivers, um, and increased orientation towards peers, caring what your peers think about you. And it's a time when your self-concept is still under construction. Teens are figuring out who they are, whom they want to affiliate with, what their goals are, what they want to spend their time on. And at a time when grades start to matter and students are becoming more aware of their ranking in a class, as we talked about, they're figuring out how much of their self-concept is actually wrapped up in school. That is their level of academic orientation. And research on self-efficacy and on implicit theories of intelligence show that if older children struggle, they're more likely than younger children to internalize ideas like I'm not very smart or I suck at math. So this could help explain why Caroline is finding that early adolescence is a time when a good teacher might matter the most, someone who can spark curiosity and motivate students and build up their self-confidence. A single inspiring teacher could make all the difference in terms of the path a student decides to take. And the very act of deciding to engage more intensely with difficult material could, as we were talking about, hone advanced cognitive skills, leading to a positive feedback loop that could be supporting academic achievement. Now, These ideas need to be tested empirically. What's the secret sauce of value-added teachers in middle school that leads to these positive outcomes like signing up for AP classes or enrolling in college? Is it simply that they explain concepts more clearly? Does the way they teach force students to think more critically? And or do they elicit the motivation and self-confidence that students need to stay engaged? Do they help students build these advanced cognitive skills? Psychology and neuroscience can help to elucidate these mechanisms underlying the effectiveness of middle school interventions. How much of it is due to canalization, that is the narrowing of opportunities for a student if they're poorly equipped for entry to high school and they get tracked into regular classes and they start to fall behind? And how much is due to sensitive periods for brain plasticity? Now, I actually want to make clear that we don't know very much at all about the timing plasticity for these higher-level skills in humans, both because the intervention studies have been really hard to pull off. I can talk to you for ages about how frustrating that's been, um, and also because of this issue of comparing apples and oranges across grade levels. So this is important. We tend to infer potential for malleability, that is experience-dependent brain plasticity, based on age-related differences in the observed magnitude of change, okay? That is normative development. So we we tend to conflate plasticity and development. And so an important challenge is to really directly test this hypothesis that middle childhood is an important period of plasticity for the brain network that supports advanced cognitive skills. Although I've shown some evidence that we we think this is mostly happening around early adolescence, the period is starting to close, I do want to stress that it is at least still somewhat malleable in adulthood, and I want to give you two pieces of evidence for this. Um, So this shows you a composite measure of a number of cognitive skills here, including abstract reasoning, as well as working memory. Um, And this is over the decades. Uh, And we know that these types of so-called domain general skills, they peak in early adulthood, and then sadly they decline The Grim Reaper comes for all of us. Um, And in one study, we asked whether the timing of this decline actually depends on the level of uh, formal education completing, the time at which um, people are challenged most, um, perhaps, in their lives. So they're challenged, stretched in many ways, while they're uh, continuing their education. And so I want to stress that we're not comparing level of cognitive functioning across people who've attained different levels of education. Instead, what we're asking is, among people within a given educational bracket, how old were the best performers? Where's the age of peak cognitive functioning? So this is from a sample of over 200,000 participants, and we find that indeed the age of peak functioning does uh, relate to the level of education completed, controlling for other variables, including socioeconomic status and gender. Um, And so we see here uh, peak cognitive functioning at around age 17 or 18 for people who didn't go beyond high school, Um, 19 to 24 for those who earned a bachelor's, and 26 to 32 among PhDs. So in other words, the hard work of going through higher education may delay the inevitable decay that comes with aging. And by the way, once we start declining, um, all of these groups show the same slope of decline. So more direct evidence comes from some studies we did in which young adults engaged in intensive reasoning practice over the course of a number of weeks or months um, in the form of preparation for the law school admission test. So the LSAT is uh, very heavily focused. uh, Two-thirds of it is focused directly on on abstract reasoning skills, and people are very motivated to pursue it. Something like 150,000 adults prepare for the LSAT every year. And so does it in any way change their cognitive abilities and their brains, at least for a short period of time? This is really proof of principle of plasticity in young adulthood. And so we did uh, collect a number of different measures over several studies. And what we find is that, first of all, um, this... Um, this intensive practice in reasoning led to increased strength in the frontoparietal white matter. I'm showing you this in a a different view, but this is the frontal cortex, this is parietal, Um, and that's the increased strength of the white matter. Uh, We also say increased um, network traffic, as I was talking about before, so the increased coupling between these distantly uh, located brain regions. We also saw more efficient task-related activation where people were performing a cognitive task. And then, and then we also saw increased performance on a variety of unpracticed tests of reasoning. Now the LSAT is all verbally based, it's all verbal problems, and we see transfer of learning to these really you know, symbolic kind of abstract tasks. And the thing I'm not showing you here is we also did an eye-tracking study because eye-tracking is a really great way to understand where people's attention is focused and how long it takes them to process certain information. And we did this when people were solving a transitive inference problem. And we saw with eye-tracking that people who had gone through the LSAT um, training, again, on these verbal things, and now they're given this abstract task, they're more efficient with their eye movements, and it takes them less time to abstract the relevant relations. Um, so really, really interesting stuff, we thought. So these and other studies suggest that it's not that we're incapable of building cognitive skills in adulthood, but it is more effortful. And on top of that, as adults, we're operating under a lot of life constraints that make it much harder to set, a time, set aside time for this um, and so it makes sense, as Caroline is saying, to invest more heavily in, in a time when we have a captive audience of students, a critical time for endogenous skill growth, and potentially a chance to get in the fo- a foot in the door before the period of maximal plasticity closes. So to conclude, I want to come back yet again to the issue of polarization, which has come up several times. Um, Steven Pinker argues in a new book on rationality that tools of formal rationality need to be taught explicitly in school, as the fourth R, and they need to become second nature. So a burning question is whether middle school is also a time when students are most amenable to learning to think critically about what they encounter, not only uh, in school, but also in their eventual jobs and in their daily lives and when they're engaging with media. So thank you.
1: So now we'll hear responses from our Tanner Lecturer, Carolyn Hoxby. Um,
4: so I'm going to take my slides out of order in, in order to try to respond Um, in a useful and meaningful way to each one of the commentators, and I want to just thank them very, very much again for their um, amazing commentary. I want to start with um, an idea that I really got from Jan, and his commentary has really helped me solidify what I was thinking about when I was thinking about how the divide in cognitive skills in a place like the United States, but it could be any place. Cognitive skills are kind of universal has led to polarization. Because what did I really mean by polarization? What I meant, essentially, was that people with higher cognitive skills and people with lower cognitive skills did not have opportunities to encounter one another anymore, that they were, in some sense, segregated. And so they're not having those conversations, whether it's the conversations about um, civics, or democracy, or policy, or anything else. they're just They're they're living in somewhat separate worlds. Now, we can think about that in terms of geography, and I'll come back to geography a little bit later. But I was inspired to go to a big survey called the General Social Survey, which asks a lot of questions about the environments in which people live, who they talk to, um, their expectations, their attitudes, things like that. Uh, The General Social Survey does not have a particularly good cognitive test on it. It has a vocabulary test, and it has um, occasional math problems, and it has some problems that are about science. But it does at least have some cognitive testing. And I wanted to look over time to see whether in the General Social Survey, where we can see not just um, someone's educational attainment or their earnings, but we can see some of their attitudes and who they talk to and who they... um, how they think about things, whether I could learn something from that. So so, um, the first uh, chart that I'm showing you is the correlation between vocabulary scores, those just happen to be the ones that are best on the General Social Survey, and income from 1974 to 2018. So if, for instance, if we start with this, the left-hand side, the correlation in 1974 is about 30%. So if you score highly on this vocabulary exam, the correlation between that and your income is about 30%. And you can see that it rises over time. There's a little bit of bumping up and down. But by the end, it's over 40%. So there definitely has been an increase in the degree to which, if you have cognitive skills that are higher, you're more likely to meet another set of people who have the same income that you do. A higher income. And if you have cognitive skills that are lower, you're going to meet other people who have um, a lower income, somewhat like yours. So that's vocabulary and income. This is vocabulary and occupational prestige. So let me explain the concept of occupational prestige. Essentially, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is trying to construct a measure of how prestigious each occupation is, and that's somewhat taken from things like what your income is, but it's also taken from other things that might make you, you're more likely to be a manager, you're more likely to be in charge of other people. An occupational prestige score has not, it's not just the same as saying you have a higher income, it's also about other attributes of your occupation that might make it so, for instance, we academics like to think that our occupations are prestigious, even though um, we wish universities would pay us more okay <laughs> so this again goes from one thousand nine hundred and seventy four to two thousand and eighteen and you can see again there, it bumps around a bit but there is an increasing correlation over time. So the people with the same level of cognitive skills end up in occupations that are more similar and have similar occupational prestige. And the correlations throughout here are higher. So they start out around a little over 35% and then they rise to about 45%. So generally speaking, we're having we're more segregated amongst other people who have the same sort of occupations that we do. And a final one where I look over time is the correlation between um, this vocabulary score and considering yourself to be a liberal. So I showed it, uh, they actually ask on the general social survey, do you consider yourself to be a liberal, do you consider yourself to be a conservative? I really don't like this question very much, um, because I don't think that it's quite the same as the previous two, occupational prestige or... um, Or your income, but it is picking up something about, are you around a lot of other people who probably have the same political views that you have? And this question gets asked basically every time they do the general social survey, whereas some of the other questions that are interesting about um, political beliefs don't get asked as often. So that's kind of why I picked it, not that I think it's a, a perfect question. It actually started out extremely low in 1975. In fact, it dipped below Zero. That's why I have on the vertical axis negative 5% for the correlation. So that in the early 1970s, your vocabulary score in the general social survey did not predict very well at all whether you considered yourself to be a liberal or a conservative. But by the end of the period of time, um, 2018, the correlation, although still not very high, is considerably higher. So, again, we see more, we're going to see more segregation of people um, uh, based on their, well, based perhaps on their cognitive skills, but that may lead them to spend a lot of time with other people who have similar political beliefs. I looked at some other interesting correlations. And on most of these, it isn't worthwhile showing the time pattern because the general social survey doesn't ask the same questions every year. So for those three, it basically asks them all the time. But it doesn't always do that. So I'm just going to tell you about these correlations, which um, it asks at some point in time. And uh, I'm going to always try to say them in a sense, like if your score was higher what would you what would we see was correlated with that positive you're more likely to have family members or close friends who are lawyers i didn't pick out lawyer they actually ask about a whole bunch of different things do you have a family member do you have a close friend do you have an acquaintance do you know no one who's a lawyer and they ask it about a lot of different professions as well but lawyers happens to work particularly well because it exemplifies a group of people who tend to have quite a lot of education negative you're less likely, if you have a higher cognitive score on the GSS, to have family members or close friends who are mechanics, hairdressers, uh, people who are uh, clean houses or offices, there are a whole array of other um, jobs that they act, um, ask about. And I thought that was important because what it's saying is essentially, you don't even know those other people with such a high probability once your cognitive skills are different And so that's going to lead to your not having a conversation with someone who might have different political beliefs, who might have a different income, or who might have an occupation that maybe your children would like to aspire to, but you just don't know anything about what lawyers um, do. They also ask a bunch of uh, very similar questions about, do you know what this type of person does? Like, what is is the job description? One of them was an economist, and everyone did so badly on that that I, I didn't show that as one of the correlations. Okay, another positive correlation... If you have higher cognitive scores, you have more confidence in the scientific community and you have more trust in science. So you presumably are reading more um, scientific publications or you pay more attention when a scientist um, says something. Again, this is an issue on which we know we're um, increasingly polarized. Right, that some people believe in science and say, medical science, climate science, other types of science, yes, I believe that. And other people say, no, I never talk to the people who believe um, in that sort of stuff. Uh, You're less likely to think that government should support declining industries. This gets to some of the stuff that Eric was talking about yesterday, especially, because people with higher cognitive skills see the people in declining industries and probably think, those people don't look very much like me. And instead, they're in industries that are uh, not declining. Uh, If you have higher cognitive skills, you think that the U.S. benefits from NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, as opposed to thinking that NAFTA is just uh, causing us to lose jobs to other countries. So again, that's kind of an economic um, polarization. Uh, And the next one is, you're more likely to think, if you have higher cognitive skills, that it will be easy to find a new job, as good as your current one. That speaks to economic fatalism or worrying about being in a declining sort of job or or industry. And then again, people with higher um, cognitive skills are more likely to get political information from what I'm just calling the legacy news media. This is newspapers, magazines, political magazines, things like that, as opposed to radio or television. Uh, so that's it. To me, this sort of goes back to Jan's point about not having um, uh, civic conversations and about people not having spaces in which to have civic conversations. Because in order to have those conversations, you need to encounter the other people. You need to find them around you. And so geography gets in the way in, in some ways. But also, you know, none of this is about geography. This is just about uh, do you know these people because they're your neighbors, you know them because uh, you meet them at work, or, or something else. Okay. So those are the GSS correlations. Now let me move on... Um, and talk a little bit about, I'm going to talk in a couple of different ways about uh, what Eric uh, talked about. And one thing that he began with was this idea that um, education or degrees, your educational attainment, was not necessarily the same as your aptitude or your cognitive skills. Looking at the Armed Forces Qualifying Test from um, from the NLSY, the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth, Uh, two different cohorts there. And one of the reasons I think this is true or increasingly true that the two things are different, educational attainment and uh, your cognitive skills, is that um, educational attainment in the United States has been changing a lot in recent years. Both... K12 but also especially post secondary education and that's where a lot of the action in educational attainment is whether you're a high school graduate or whether you have some college or whether you have a bachelor's degree or something like that so what i'm just showing you here is the boom in online post secondary enrollment starting in about 1998 And going up until 2014, and I'm sorry, I didn't, this is from an older paper of mine, I didn't have the most recent numbers. It's basically continued to go up, but around 600,000 students each year are now enrolled in online post-secondary education. So they're getting college degrees or they're in college, but it's a very different college than the college that people went to in the 1950s or in the 1960s, and we can't expect them to necessarily pick up the same set of skills. And that would start to break um, break the relationship between Uh, I have higher cognitive skills when I'm tested on the AFQT at age 14, and I end up having higher educational attainment. The more we have a situation like this where we have very non-traditional post-secondary enrollment, the more that relationship might break down. Now this is from a study of mine of online enrollment and I just wanted to show you what post secondary online schools are like. So across the bottom here this is the length of the enrollment episode. In other words how long are you actually enrolled? And then on the vertical axis it shows you how what percentage of people are enrolled for how much time. So the first thing that you'll note is that most uh, the modal number here is th- uh, the modal category is 1. In other words, people are enrolled in online post-secondary education for one year. Often, it's amazingly short. It's, when you look at the data, it's six weeks, it's eight weeks, it's 12 weeks, and that's it, okay? So most people are enrolled for a very short period of time, 38.1% of them, I shouldn't say most, the modal person is enrolled uh, um, for a very short period of time. And then the next two categories are both reasonably big as well, I get enrolled for two years, I get enrolled for three years, but you'll notice that hardly anyone is enrolled for four years or five years, where they might logically be able to get a bachelor's degree. And that those very short periods of enrollment mean that they probably will have picked up quite limited skills in online post-secondary education because they just aren't really there, okay? They're not really there long enough to pick up anything. If you do a calculation, oh, this is from the same study, And it's just showing you wages before, during, and after a two-year calendar, a two-calendar year episode of post-secondary enrollment that is online. And so this is coming into this period of enrollment. Your wages are rising slowly, like everybody's wages rise. This is the period of enrollment in the middle. So you're enrolled here for two years. I didn't I didn't use show the one-year enrollees because they're enrolled for such a short time. That seemed a little unfair to me. And then here are their wages and earnings after they're enrolled. Um, And when I draw, if I were to draw a line through that, I would say there was no effect of their having been enrolled in post-secondary education for two years. None whatsoever. The only effect that you really notice is while they're enrolled, they have slightly lower income probably because they're enrolled, so they have to work a few fewer hours. Although, frankly, if you look at how many fewer hours they work, they can't be terribly, you know, terribly invested um, in their enrollment period, which is maybe why they don't seem to pick up very many skills. But I think, again, this is kind of breaking that relationship between cognitive skills and educational attainment. So that increase, and this is part of why I've been very interested in going, what I think of as back to basics, and looking at cognitive skills and saying, Well, I can always look at educational attainment, but it's nice to be able to look at actual cognitive skills. Well, I'll tell you what was on that last slide. (laughs) I don't wanna have to go all the way back to the end again. It just shows you what was the return on society's investment from your going to um, post-secondary school. And for many, many schools, it is now negative. In other words, you put in this much money of your own money. You're obviously putting in society's money too. Because you're using your Pell Grant or you're using federal student loans, or um, for many schools it is a negative um, earner. It's like you invest in the stock market and you keep losing money at around you know three percent a year instead of ever gaining any money. So I think that's what I just wanted to show in that in that final slide. Again, saying that economic outcomes maybe may be more important to look at your actual cognitive skills than just look at your educational attainment. All right, now I'm going to. Mention something that relates to what Silvio was talking about um, it 's a great puzzle um, that when we think endogenous skill growth should matter a lot, that children who get uh, investments in their education as very young people do not have as much growth as we expect them to have, and in fact their advantages vis-a-vis other children seem to really fade out. So I'm just showing you a slide here from the um, randomized control trial conducted by Mathematica. It's a very big randomized control trial that either assigned children to a Head Start Center or um, randomly did not assign them to a Head Start Center. And we happen to be looking at the results. I know you can't see them, that's not going to matter for what we're going to do. Um, for, we're looking at the results for students who were assigned at age three, so they were in Head Start for age three and four, and then they would have gone on to kindergarten, grade one and grade two. Okay, so this is what you often see in studies like this. This is the column for grade three, and everything that is has a dark, shading to it, means that they were actually improving on that skill when they were enrolled in Head Start at age three. So I can read these things better than you can, but they're things like emergent literacy skills, letter naming, being able to name your letters. They also have one for being able to name your numbers, Um, receptive vocabulary, letter word identification, um, things like that. In math, the problems at that age are more like counting problems and applied problems where you would do something like that. But you do see effects on them when they're in Head Start as three-year-olds. By age four, you'll notice that the shading, the darker shaded squares, are kind of dropping off, and we have more just clear, empty squares. And by kindergarten, we actually see one positive effect and one negative effect. That's the one with the little stripes. In first grade, we see only one positive effect, and in third grade, we only see one negative effect. So that's that kind of drop-off of what looked like an advantage when you were at age three. And I think it is, it's is—it's a serious puzzle, and I think it's a puzzle you know, that people like Sylvia have to help us solve, because it is about brain development. What would cause a child to learn these things better as a three-year-old, and then somehow not exactly unlearn them, but not be able to build on that set of um, that set of skills, that set of wiring so what I wanted to show you just to follow up on that is um, the stubborn persistence of relatively low achievement in the United States, and I think it does relate to questions that people have been asking all along. What do we do about this? So even though we've been through a lot of different reform movements in the United States, including a much greater emphasis on early childhood education over relatively recent years, achievement is not very high in the United States and remains um, stubbornly persistent. So the blue line is for age nine. Uh, The red line is for age 13, and the green line is for age 17, and this is the National Assessment of Education Progress. It's called the Long-Term Trend Assessment, and they give this every few years um, to students in the United States. I happen to be showing you reading here. It goes from about 1970 to 2020, so up until very, very recently. And what am I showing you? It's the percent who are scoring at the level that they call proficient or above. So you can, they have proficient and then they have advanced. And these are p- children who are scoring proficient or, um, or above proficient. And you can see that the numbers are, first of all, very low for all of the categories of students. So the age nine-year-olds, about 15% of them are scoring proficient or above in 1970. Um, about 10% of the age 13-year-olds, and the age 17-year-olds are the least likely to be proficient or above. They're sort of hovering around seven or eight, okay, in 1970. Now the thing that, so first of all, this pattern of the age nine-year-olds always looking a little better than the age 13-year-olds, who always look a bit better than the age 17-year-olds, is absolutely persistent in the national assessment of education progress over time. But the thing that I want you to also notice is there's hardly any movement over time. This is a long period of time, 1970 to 2020. We've been through lots and lots of different things. We've had lots of socioeconomic and demographic changes over this period of time. And yet, we still have about 15% of nine year olds being proficient, about 10% of 13 year olds being persistent, and something around 7% of um, of 17-year-olds being persistent. And given the fact that being proficient or advanced on this test is a good predictor of whether you're going to thrive in college, these are very low proficiency rates um, uh, in reading. Math looks a little better. You can see that the 9-year-olds and the 13-year-olds have seen some improvements in recent years, especially since about 1995. But notice that when they turn into 17 year olds, which they inevitably do, um, (laughs) they are not, these 17 year olds are not only not improving in math proficiency, they're actually getting worse in math proficiency slightly, very, very slightly over time. So we should have started to see an uptick already for the 17 year olds. We just haven't seen it. So this pattern of the 17 year olds um, being worse. is there, I'm not gonna bore you so much with the next, or bore you, I hope, with the next two graphs, but they're just here to show you that just by focusing on the proficient and advanced, I'm not hiding something about the students who score lower than proficient or advanced. So for instance, if you look at this chart, These are uh, what are called the scale scores on the reading test over time. And you can see that they're absolutely flat. The fact that the 17-year-olds are now on top is just an artifact of the way the test is scored. Don't worry about that. All you're really looking at is that they're very, very flat over time. And the same thing is true for reading, uh, for mathematics. So there is this... We clearly, there is some barrier to our making much more progress and to our getting a bunch of 17 year olds who are really capable of uh, doing advanced cognitive skilled work or thriving in college or university. And then in my final minute, um, I'm going to go back to some of the maps that Eric used just to point out one thing that I think is quite important. This is the percentage of adults who have at least somewhat advanced numeracy. So they're only in the top 37%. This is not, um, you do not have to be a, a, a brilliant mathematician here at Berkeley um, to get to be um, in the very darkest color blue in this, you just have to be in the top 37%. And um, you'll notice this this pattern that Eric pointed out several times of certain areas like Appalachia, the Ozarks, and some of the South. Um, Okay, I also wanna emphasize the areas where we do see a lot of adults with advanced cognitive skills, and they're exactly where you think they would be. This is San Francisco, that's Los Angeles. This is San Diego. We can see Seattle and Portland up there. This is Salt Lake City. Uh, You you can, of course, see that Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. show up. And Chicago, you can easily pick it out um, from from other places. Okay, so we know that that's how adults look. If we look at... uh, Also, notice that what's called the famous Lutheran Belt in the United States, where people have advanced cognitive skills but don't often have jobs that are... Um, you know Silicon Valley types of jobs or uh, high tech sorts of jobs. It's just a it's just a phenomenon in the United States. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I already showed you Appalachia. That's the Ozarks, and this is what I call the Inland South. Okay, if you look at twelfth graders, you can see the same patterns. Um, so even though they're not fully adults yet, the patterns are already showing up for the twelfth graders. But interestingly enough. If you look at third graders, the patterns don't look all that similar. So the patterns are definitely emerging over time. If you have very little kids, you would not say, oh, I can see the same geographic patterns. And I'll just point out one example to you here. Remember that California was looking pretty good for the adults' cognitive skills, right? But for third graders' cognitive skills, it does not look good at all. In fact, the only county in the state of um, California that looks at all good is um, Santa Clara County. Uh, Sorry, guys. (laughs) Um, Santa Clara County. And also, for instance, Florida looks pretty good in advanced cognitive skills. But when you get to adults, um, it's going to turn out that Florida does not look particularly good. So different patterns do emerge over time. And this tells me that third graders are not yet set on some trajectory where if you don't have them at this Age, you're never going to get them. Otherwise, California uh, would look quite different. I will emphasize, I won't show you the, another chart, but I will emphasize that in this same study, I do look at migration from one state to another, one county to another, and you do see people who have higher advanced cognitive skills migrating towards areas where there are other people with advanced cognitive skills. No surprise there. But migration does not account for most of the difference between what you see for third graders, twelfth graders, and adults. Migration is a phenomenon, but it is not. Um, it is not... That pervasive um, I want to end here and thank my commentators again I learned uh, such a lot from all of them and I really look forward to working with them on a tanner lectures book based on this series and thank you all for coming and I think we have a QA period now
5: okay. yeah I- Question or two, I guess they're almost like suggestions. You know, we've seen this map a lot of times of the Appalachia and the Mississippi Delta. And um, for let me start off by, I really have enjoyed the series of lectures, uh, Professor Hoxby. They've been very enlightening for me, particularly because uh, I'm a humanist, and your use of data to tease out, you know, uh, salient. differences in ages and so forth has been both precise and sort of revelatory for me. So I, well, thank you. Uh, I want to suggest, though, you know, everybody in here is A in Berkeley and probably has advanced degrees or maybe does. And I really think you would gain a lot, the, the, the host of you, if you haven't already, go to Mississippi go to Louisiana, go to Missouri to, to spend time there. I've been there, and and some of what you'd find is um, it's cotton-growing territory, right? That Mississippi was and is cotton today. So I was uh, there in a professional role. We worked for a, a professional development uh, nonprofit, uh, and I worked in that area. Fantastic. But... I'm in a little town called Lake Village, Arkansas. And I'm standing there with about um, 15 to 16 African-American women who teach grades 1 to 6. And so I'm trying to break the ice. And, and, you know, they know that I flew in there that morning from Atlanta, Georgia. They can probably tell from my accent that I'm not a Southerner, I'm a Californian. So I said to them, I said, uh, who, who else in the room has lived somewhere else? And it was complete silence. And, you know, Southerners, they they want to be gracious. So everybody, they kind of look one to the other. Finally, one woman raises her hand meekly, and she says, I lived in Eudora. Eudora was five miles from where we were standing. So my, my point is, is that a big developmental fact in my own history and yours is that we move to different places, and we have different experiences. The, um, I think the upshot of the lectures has been a policy recommendation, but I hope you all realize that K-12 education is extremely local, extremely diverse, and the teachers probably, in those classrooms, probably grew up within 15 miles of where the classroom is. So... I'm not sure how the sociologists uh, describe professionalism, but being a, a college faculty member is a professional undertaking. Being a third-grade teacher really is not. And uh, that, that was I have one other thing though, that I wanted to it's totally different. Uh, this was actually for Professor Hurst. I, I liked your slides that were about uh, people of employment age who don't have jobs. And um, I'm getting the sense that a reality maybe for another Tanner Lecture series will be, what are we going to do when uh, many, many jobs that today are respected, uh, not necessarily advanced cognitive skill jobs, but they're gone. They're redundant, as the Brits say. Um, I personally think we've got to go to a universal basic income, but that's a whole ball of wax and. And, uh, you yeah. so read Edward Bellamy's Looking Backwards if you haven't, or reread it if you have.
4: Thank you. Terrific, thank you. Any thoughts on the panel? Well, I, I did want to comment especially on um, education is very local in the United States. We have a much less centralized system than most other country systems. And teachers, uh, if you ask them where are you most likely to end up as a teacher, the answer is in the same school that I attended, either in elementary or middle or high school. And some of that is sort of people call it the call of home, that they just feel comfortable in that community. But it does mean that we don't have a system like France has kind of the opposite end of the system system. Everyone is supposed to be taught the same national curriculum. And if you do really well when you're young, then they try to feed you up the system and move you to Paris, frankly, right? And move you to Paris. I'm not sure we want to have all the central, centralization of the French. Um, doesn't seem somehow faintly un-American to me. But, um, uh, but still, I, I, I agree with you that if you go to Mississippi or Arkansas or, or all kinds of places, what you're going to find is a lot of... Um, locals there, and many Americans are less mobile than they probably should be. This is more of Eric's territory than mine, but when I lived in Massachusetts, something I could never understand was why was it that people who lived in western Massachusetts and across the border in upstate New York, who lived only two hours from Boston, would never have visited Boston? Yeah. Right, And would never even think of interviewing for a job in Boston, which didn't make any sense to me. You could drive out there in the morning. Mm-hmm. But, in fact, they were very immobile, and it's even small distances can matter a lot.
5: Yeah, you know, you could even apply that to the children. If you took third graders from western Massachusetts, put them on a bus, and took them to Boston for a science museum and Harvard Yard or whatever, they, it would blow their minds, you know, just the fact that they saw things vastly different
1: from their
6: hometown. Right, okay, so I think we have another question from uh, David Roman. Um, so first of all, I want to echo, this is just utterly fantastic and mind-expanding for, for all of us, and I think the, the format with the, with the main lecturers and the, and the commentators is just just amazing. Um, I want to sort of ask Caroline a, sort of a broad question that's related to something that came up in, in many of the comments, which was, so your emphasis is on sort of we need to invest in adolescent education without saying quite as much about well what kind of education would be, in, be investing in. So, so Sylvia said there's you know the fourth R, should we be explicitly teaching people not yeah. math reading but abstract reasoning skills? And my anecdote here is when our kids were in middle school, they had 45 minutes of thinking skills every week which one of my colleagues commented, well, what are you teaching them the rest of the time, if not, if not thinking so?
4: Um,
6: second, picking up on Jan's comment, so one of the underlying concerns here is polarization. Should we be teaching civics? And in that case, it's not as obvious that your evidence, you know, we, we, why, why middle school for that? Why not earlier or later? And then Conrad Miller raised the issue of kind of soft skills. Um, I'm a, not a consumer. I'm not a, a serious participant in that literature in any way. So I say I have seen papers suggesting that soft skills can be taught early. Some of the Head Start stuff on the soft side seems to last longer. There are programs in Chicago where you know inner-city children or or you know, high school kids are taught things like anger management. And there's at least one paper on. Really, when we're seeing the returns to education, it's not the coder for Google or for Google who can you know, do math problems faster than anyone else. It's the history major, the people who can think broadly, who can manage and, and pick up new skills and, and so on. So soft skills, civics, uh, just reasoning as a course would be three particular areas. I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Do you want to
4: go first okay? Um, yeah, well, I agree with you. We have one of the things that has been hard to show is um, it, for a long time it was very hard to show that teachers actually mattered. okay So that was kind of um, when I first started working in this area, you everyone would try running a regression on your later outcomes and then the qualifications of your teacher. Something about your teacher's education, whether they had a master's, whether they had master's degrees, things like that, um, how much they were paid, all of those types of things, you just couldn't. It was very difficult to show that those things mattered. Now, on the pay issue, it, they, since they were all paid pretty much the same thing, then part of the problem was there's just no variation in pay. But in, in, in education, there there was variation, and it didn't seem to make very much difference. But then, when we started to instead estimate teacher value added, we realized, oh wait, these teachers vary tremendously. And so there is something that they're doing differently. It's been, I think, the work of the last, I'd say, seven-ish years that once people realized that teachers vary a lot, and not just varying in terms of teaching cognitive things, but also in teaching soft skills, they went into classrooms and tried to observe what are the teachers who are more successful doing differently. If we know that this teacher is a high-value-added teacher, what is it about her usually, that makes her a high value added teacher. And I think that effort has, I don't want to say it's ground to a halt, but somehow it wasn't as easy as people thought it would be. They thought they would go into Mrs. Smith's classroom and then they would see that she divided the time up very differently than Mrs. Jones. Maybe she spent more time on reasoning skills or something like that. Um, And it's, I think it's proven to be challenging for people. So I'm not it hasn't stopped. The Gates Foundation has actually sponsored a tremendous amount of work along these lines with people spending a lot of time in classrooms trying to understand what more successful teachers are doing differently. There is also some work that suggests that you can train teachers to be significantly better teachers, but it's usually through having um, a mentor who is another teacher. And so it's not... Necessarily going back to education school or going back to school for something. It's often being mentored by another teacher who's a very successful teacher, and she sort of teaches you some set of, some set of skills. And by the way, the 45 minutes on reasoning skills, that doesn't surprise me at all. There was this wonderful reform in the United Kingdom studied by Steve Machin, and it was called the, uh, the Reading Hour, and all they said to parents, all they said to teachers, there were no increases in school spending, no nothing like that, no reorganization of schools. They said, you must spend at least one hour on reading-related activities per day. And it worked so well, without having their spent any more money, that then they said, we have to have a math hour, too. <laughs> so it does, it does go to show that you know, schools can be using their time in a way that's not necessarily on the things that you think you want them to, to teach. But... It's a great idea. Um, thank you very much for your
0: yeah. question. Okay, thank you. I would just want to ask a follow-up uh, based upon some of the questions we heard. So sometimes when I'm thinking about these inequalities, I put myself in the mind of a benevolent dictator. I do that a lot sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So if you were the benevolent dictator and we had to do some policies now, what would you be you know, recommending in terms of tangible things that we could be doing to, to, to capture some of this low-hanging fruit?
4: So, I think um, I always answer this question the same way, okay? Because the one thing I know is that um, teachers matter a lot. And having more people who are good teachers in schools would make a difference. So, some other types of things might be promising, but you can't say for sure I know that this would make a big difference. If you do calculations, just sort of back of the envelope calculations, on teachers' value added, let's say we. Um, you get a teacher who's one standard deviation above the median on teacher value added, okay? And you say, what if my child could always have a teacher who's one standard deviation above the median? Or we can think about it more Mm -hmm. realistically as a policy where we try to make the the median what is now one standard deviation above Mm -hmm. the median. That pans out to be worth so much in terms of later lifetime earnings for the people whom you teach Part of it is the numbers matter, too, right? You have higher value added. Each one of your children has slightly higher earnings, but you teach 20 children a year, and you might teach you know, in multiple different classes. We should probably be paying teachers more like $300,000 a year or $350,000 a year if, if we could get them to be the higher value-added teachers. So I, I'm not making the claim that let's just take the body of teachers who we have right now and raise all of their salaries for 350 to $350 because that would not achieve the same effects. In fact, some people are unsuccessful teachers really ought to leave teaching, and so if we went and paid them a whole lot more, it's not obvious that they would suddenly decide, oh, uh, now I'll leave, okay, now that you started to pay me so much more. But if we were to change the way teachers were paid so that we could get higher-quality teachers... But, and have to pay them more so that they didn't want to do some alternative job, that's probably the most obvious type of reform to have because it doesn't require us to know much beyond what we already know works. And so that
0: means getting communities to willing to, to have resources to do those those payments but also at the same time getting... The school districts to reward different teachers differently? I'm, I'm trying to think, so what is the next step? So that sounds yeah. perfectly safe. So how do we then go to get the school, you know, the citizens to pay that extra for the teachers and, the, and the, 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 the unions and the teachers to allow differential compensation?
4: So I once tried to convince the Commissioner, Education Commissioner of the State of Florida, who was a very super smart guy, very data-oriented, to devise two different payment systems for teachers in Florida, and when you came in as a teacher, or I don't know, but let's just say, when you came in as a teacher, they would say, hey, you can stick with the old payment system, which is lockstep pay, but by the way, your pay is not going to be very high. Uh Or you can take up this new system, but there's more risk in this system because although you can achieve much higher pay, if you're not a good teacher in this new system, you're not going to get paid as much as the ones who stuck with the lockstep pay, right? And it just run the two systems parallel to one another. And over time, you would expect that the people who would select into the higher pay, but um, you, know, you have to actually be good at it in order to get the rewards, that they would turn out to take over more and more of the, of the state schools. So that was kind of the transitional idea. It wasn't you get rid of the union, it was rather you just let people choose between the two systems. He didn't take me up on it. <laughs> uh, question
7: from Jay Wallace. Uh, yeah. Um, echo all the comments about how stimulating these days have been. Um, I guess I just want to come back to, to uh, our contemporary political predicaments mm. and, and the connection between what you've been talking about. I mean, it seems like, there, to me, it sounds like there are various points of connection between the points you've been making about um, cognitive skills and the contemporary political situation. One of them goes by way of, of um, you know, economic fatalism, and if your 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 economic prospects, your ability to meet labor market demands, and so on, in uh, in in your economy. Um, you know, if if you're you're not doing well, and the, that will lead to a sense of enemy and alienation and resentment of elites and so on, that feeds into these processes. That's kind of an indirect contribution of these processes to some of our contemporary political um, ailments. Today, you were talking about segregation, not meeting. You know, and, and that seems like a, a parallel part of the story. If you're not interacting with you know, you know people whose uh, life prospects are are different from yours. I guess that makes it easier to see them as another to, to develop resentments toward them, to, to feed into processes of negative, um, you know, group identity formation and so on. Um, but then there's this third element. I think uh, Jan was talking about it today about a democratic education, and uh, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about this third element. It, Jan was talking about civic education in particular and and evoking Dewey, and it almost sounded like that was going to be something separate from development of higher-order cognitive skills, Um, but it seems to me there's a different story one could tell where development of higher-order skills is actually a a central... It's not the totality of civic education, but it's a central part of education for democratic citizenship, Insofar as it presupposes capacities to evaluate complicated processes you know policies to reason critically about um, you know information that you 're presented to to you know to engage uh, in democratic processes on a basis of rational reflection and so on um, and i 'm I'm, I'm a philosopher, so of course I'm, i guess i 'm attracted to this view of I, you know, very idealized view of democracy and what education for democracy would look like. It seems to me it fits into your story. We're not really educating. Uh, you know, a lot of our citizens are not really equipped to to function in a highly su- complicated democracy because they lack the, some of the cognitive skills that are necessary, if not sufficient, for that. And that that itself, if that's a deficit, is going to contribute, at least as one factor, to kind of the contemporary political problems that we're all worried about. Um, and yeah, so I'm, um, you know, that goes together with, I guess, a certain conception of what democracy is, uh, kind of a deliberative conception where it's not just a forum for expressing your preferences, whatever they are in some sense, but 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 somehow uh, something that's more based in reasoning and capacities to assess critically arguments and so on. That's a, a picture, however, that seems pretty attractive to me. And anyway, um, what do you think about that—that that, that kind of connection between development of cognitive skills and and a democratic citizenship? And I, so I, that's a question for Caroline and for Jan. How does Jan see the relation between cognitive skills and in what you are calling civic education today?
4: Well, let me um, say just a few words, and then we'll, I'll turn it over to Jan. Um, one result that I I don't know if you've noticed that I've emphasized throughout is that math skills, cognitive skills, do not better predict future outcomes than reading cognitive skills. In fact, reading cognitive skills are slightly more predictive of later um, adult outcomes. And you can think that a lot of what you need to do in order to be a good civic person, participate successfully in society, is be able to read and be able to reason critically with the things that you read and that's, that's, it's really that development of those reading related cognitive um, skills and, and writing skills as well because writing is a very integrative, synthetic process that helps you think through um, all kinds of issues so uh, I would emphasize that fact that it's not all about getting everyone to just do math, that it's also reading is really important. Also for instance uh, the experiment that Sylvia was describing today with the um, LSAT students, or the students who are studying for the LSAT, that's a perfect example, right? That's a, that's cognitive reasoning, that's almost entirely text, I think it is entirely text based, entirely text based. You need to be good at reasoning, you need to be good at understanding what someone, the problem that someone is trying to get you to solve, and lawyers are inherently part of our civic um, society, right? That's why we, they serve in courtrooms, they do things like that, they try cases, and I think it's, that's a very good example of how when we train a lawyer, we know that it's not just, we don't just put them through math classes. We put them through a type of training that is very text-based and reading-based, but still is requiring them to develop critical thinking. And so that's, those are the two things that I, that I would emphasize.
3: Okay. Yeah, I love that question. Um, so there are several things you need to be able to do, right, to engage with people you disagree with. You have to be able to understand a nuanced argument. You have to be able to integrate different people's viewpoints. You have to be able to inhibit your own kind of reactive tendencies to try to and cognitively, you know, be cognitively flexible and update your views as you get more information, all of that. Um, There's actually a really interesting study that came out of Stanford this past year, um, Russ Poldrak and colleagues, um, and they took a lot of data from um, just. Like online data from people who had had a number of cognitive tests, and we also knew a lot about their political ideology, Uh, and they found. Just these differences in cognitive styles between people who were, you know, who self-identified as more conservative or more liberal. Um, and so there was a difference, for example, in a speed accuracy trade-off. Um, so the liberals tended to be more fast and loose, responding to very basic cognitive tasks more quickly, um, and the conservatives tended to be slower. I'm talking about super simple tasks that have nothing to do with politics or anything like that. Um, so there were differences also in cognitive flexibility and the more 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 liberals were more likely to be able to update based on simple rules like press for color or press based on shape or something like that. Just really powerful stuff, I think.
2: So if I may, I'll make one meta comment, uh, again, in the hope of provoking more disagreement on this panel. (laughs) Uh, Then say something about democracy and then maybe one word about polarization, which has obviously played an important role in our conversations over the last couple of of days. So the meta-comment, just for your consideration, is that, of course, political science um, is sort of riven by deep insecurities about its own status as a science. And I think for the longest time, we clearly had mainly economics envy. So this was obviously the thing to do. The more mathematical, the more scientific, the better. As of late, I think it's been much more psychology envy, and especially in the light of what has been happening in the last six, seven years or so, uh, it's clear that people are just rushing towards explanations that basically tell us, look, people are just so damn irrational. You know, mm-hmm. Even if you explain to them patiently that you know, something is wrong, they're going to double down on their beliefs because they're so ideological and, and so on. Um, and I think we have a lot to learn from all the different disciplines, but sometimes... I think we also then tend to overlook, basically, the autonomy of the political. And I'll try to come back to that in my third brief, brief remark. Um, on, what, on your main question, so clearly, democracy is neither just the periodic registration of given, given preferences, nor is it epistocracy or technocracy. It is, again, riffing on Dewey, a communicative, constructive, ongoing process, where something like a political will is created in ongoing exchanges amongst people, uh, re exchanges of reasons, but even emotional exchanges can you know, play an entirely legitimate role, given that emotions also have cognitive, cognitive basis. Um, I think one of the fateful things that has happened, again, in light of, in light of certain developments in the last five, six years or so, is that a certain type of liberal, if I may generalize, has sort of retreated to the safety of technocracy. You know, um, if you care about the truth, subscribe today. Uh, democracy dies in darkness, and the darkness is all these irrational people out there. And, of course, that's sort of faithfully wrong, because, again, democracy is not about technocracy. There is usually not a singularly correct rational answer for political challenges. And what is then often developed is a sort of fateful vicious circle where basically technocrats assert there's a uniquely rational answer. If you disagree, you basically reveal yourself to be irrational. That has been hugely helpful for a certain type of populist who says, what do you mean, democracy without choices, democracy without the people? If then a certain type of populist wins an election, technocrats are going to say, look, you give power to the people, you know, they elect Trump, they elect Duterte, they elect Bolsonaro, and so on. So... These sort of two seeming extremes tend to strengthen each other over time, and even though they look like extremes that are opposed to each other, they also have one thing in common, because they're both forms of anti-pluralism. Technocrat says only one correct rational solution, you disagree, you're irrational. Populist says only one authentic will of the people, only we represent it. If you disagree, you're a traitor, you're an american you know, take your, take your pick. And and all what, what we should think of as sort of pluralistic democratic engagement then disappears between these, these two two extremes. Last brief thing, polarization. So I think we've heard a lot of important important um, a lot of important evidence of how certain factors can certainly facilitate. Polarization, a certain type of geographic segregation. You never meet a certain type of person. You're more likely to think that they're evil, they will destroy the country, and and so on. Um, But I would insist that ultimately it's still a political project. It's not new that we have deep divisions. There are plenty of other countries where you could have similar findings, and yet they don't have crazy sorts of politics as, as an outcome necessarily. So you still need polarization entrepreneurs, and that's not a new insight. Like in the old days, you know you're a worker, But a socialist party needs to tell you that you're actually part of the working class and what that means and how you should think about certain other actors in in democracy. And last thing I'll say before God forbid switching into lecture mode again um, is that really one peculiarity of the United States, alas, and this will not really surprise you as a finding, is that unlike in many other countries, you do have a completely self-enclosed right-wing media ecosphere, as a number of distinguished colleagues at Harvard in particular have shown empirically. Um, yes, you have have crazy conspiracy theories on the left too, but eventually they're going to get corrected because people are in touch with whatever the Times, the Washington Post, and so on. Within this self-enclosed world, news is simply about political self-validation. These people are not going to read the Wall Street Journal online or something that could actually suggest to them, no, this is not true about what you've heard about this pizzeria in Washington, and so on. And that's a peculiarity, and that is a, a huge part of the kind of polarization we have ended up with. And you'll be surprised to hear that I don't have a panacea for that or, you know, here are my five policy, uh, policy points how to, how to tackle that. But I think any sort of serious engagement with that predicament sort of has to factor this in. So I, so, I partly say this in response to Eric's point. We have this, access to the same information. True in theory, but de facto there is something about this self-enclosed world. And last footnote to that, it's not the Internet. This was created in the 1980s and 1990s, has much more to do with radio, cable, TV, and so on. We're not fated to live in this world simply because we now have new technologies.
1: Well, I, I'm afraid we've reached the end of our time. Um, let's uh, thank our panel, Jan werner Mueller, mm-hmm. uh, Eric Hurst, Sylvia Bumgay, and especially Carolyn Hoxby for a wonderfully stimulating series of lectures and discussions.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.